Good morning, Hope Reform Baptist Church and everyone else tuning in online. I pray you're having a, uh, a blessed weekend under this regrettable uh, lockdown, but we will uh, update you in the, in the coming week on what, what our plans forward as an eldership team and as a body of a church will be doing. Uh, I pray that you'll just uh, uh, be, be open-hearted and open-minded as we jump into the book of Mark today. So can you jump into chapter 2 as we continue this fast-paced gospel? <clears throat> We have already covered that Jesus came, uh, announced his own ministry starting, and did not wait at all before he just powered into mighty miracles, extensive preaching, casting out of demons, and especially Mark's gospel just shows us this action-packed view. It's, it's short, it's punchy, it goes from action to action, and now today we're going to see even more. In chapter 1, it was all about his coming. It was all about his glory. It was all amazing to watch and everything was happening well. In chapter two, we're actually going to see opposition start rising. So we're going to cover two stories today. There's another two that come, uh, which, which outline his, uh, the, the opposition and the questions that are coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in chapter three, they begin to actually start planning his death. So it's not going to take long for Jesus' arrival and glory in messianic uh, majesty to start translating into opposition as we see this manifestation of John chapter 1, which we're told, and John chapter 3, where we're told that the light comes into the darkness, the darkness does not like it, and the judgment on this dark world is that when the light comes in, the darkness attacks it, would not have it. it uh, this world of sinners, you and me, as shown through the scribes and the Pharisees and the generation of Jesus' day, we try and vomit Jesus out of this world. The one thing we so ultimately need when he comes to us, naturally, we respond in opposition and rejection. It's the work of the Spirit of God which brings about acceptance, faith, submission, and repentance. I pray that that is our attitude today is maybe a, an unbeliever listening in. Maybe you've, you're uh, uh, somebody who has called yourself a Christian for a long time, but, but really not walking in a saving knowledge of Jesus, obedience to his word, repentance of sin. Or maybe you're a Christian who knows Jesus savingly. You need to recognize it comes from the work of a Holy Spirit. He has worked in our hearts to bring us to submission to Jesus. And so let's now go into chapter 2 of Mark's gospel. I'm going to read the whole lot today, the first 17 verses, and then we'll go, walk through it slowly and begin to break it down. So here is the word of our triune holy Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning him, 
said to, uh, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, then he went out again because, uh, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And, he, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, precious word to us this morning. So we see really two, two stories, two uh, parts of Jesus' day. One where he's, he's preaching and then heals a paralytic, and another where he, he calls Levi, who becomes the apostle Matthew, writes his own gospel, and of course questions the Pharisees. But you start seeing, don't you, that the opposition is rising. He's no longer just going about healing, preaching, casting demons out, and everybody uh, are praising him and bringing the sick to him, but there's some opposition. I want to today just break down what happens here with the paralytic. Uh, let's go back to chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll just break down what's, what's going on. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus returned to Capernaum, or Capernaum, whatever you want to say. Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. What it seems like is uh, that Jesus, uh, once he grew up, like, of course, he was born in Bethlehem, moved to Egypt from persecution of Herod to save his life. He then moved up into Nazareth, lived there. Uh, but then in his adult years, when he began his ministry, he went down and lived in Capernaum, uh, which was a, a uh, fairly well-off fishing town. This is where Peter lived. And we saw last week that, uh, G, uh, two weeks ago, sorry, that Jesus was in the house of, a, uh, of Peter uh, in his family home, which is a pretty well-off home. So we're not entirely sure whether Jesus had sort of gotten his own home to rent and stay in uh, while he, uh, in the early days of his ministry, which he would move out of later and not return to, or whether his being at home was in Peter's house. We're not entirely sure, but either way, he's come back to where he had really spent most of his lodging in Capernaum, and there he was, and, and the crowds heard it. Uh, the word got out that this healer was back as we sort of ended last chapter with how the crowd starting amassing because of the reputation of a healer that he'd become, not the, not, not the reputation he wanted, he wanted to be known as a preacher. And so, verse 2 says, when many gathered, he was preaching the word to them. He, he wasn't distracted from his ministry and his mission. But 
you can see that in this house, however big it is, he's, he's there and it's filled. You've got people climbing all over each other to hear his preaching and get near to his healing. And you've also got people at the door and outside the door. There's not even room there, likely spilling out into the streets. Um, it's, the, the reason that some think it's not Peter's house, it might have been a, another house that Jesus has rented, was because it seems more practical that he would have gone to the upper room that many of those houses had and preached out the window to those in the house and in the street. Uh, it seems not Jesus' usual practice to be in a small closed room where he can't preach to the maximum amount of people. We're not entirely sure, but nonetheless, he's there. He's in this house, a small house, and he was preaching the word to them. I wonder if you've ever imagined that, whether you've ever thought, stopped and thought what it would have been like to have the incarnation of the word itself, to have the one who wrote the scriptures, the eternal son of God, through his prophets uh, of long time ago, to then have him in person opening scrolls and teaching you the meaning. This would have been a privilege like no other. I mean, I've I always often think, like, what, what historical moment would you go back to? Would you go back to uh, maybe the, the Areopagus address of Paul in uh, Athens? That's one of my top ones I would have gone to. There's, there's some other uh, battles that I would have loved to go and see from Scotland's day. But this, this I would love to see. Jesus preaching his own word, preaching about himself from the word he's written through prophets to the people who are listening. The people of Capernaum and surrounding cities had privileges like no other. They had a once, not in a lifetime, once in the universal history privilege of hearing Jesus preach and heal and cast out demons and all of that. But one of the warnings that we, we hear here is, is the warning to not walk in their footsteps. Capernaum had all of these great blessings, namely Jesus preaching frequently to them all of the time. We see this again when he goes by the seaside. He's still teaching them. And yet in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 11, we see Jesus curse Capernaum. We see him say that Capernaum, woe to you. That's what the prophets used to say in the Old Testament. There's judgment coming on you because if the miracles that I've done, I had done in Sodom, that homosexual rapist, fornicating town. If I had done these miracles there, they would have repented. But on judgment day, Sodom will stand up and be a judgment against you, Capernaum, because you have not believed. We need to take seriously that it is not enough to hear the word of God. It's not enough to see the word of God lived out in others. It's not even enough to see and meet with Jesus physically. We have to have the spirit work in our hearts as we saw John proclaiming in chapter one, repent of your sins. Respond to the word of God by submitting to the son of God. This is the work of the spirit of God. So let us not be those people who hear the word frequently, but, but that that hearing would only increase our judgment. Let's be people who respond that Jesus would say later, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So here he is. He's preaching to this crowd. And, and of course, then uh, uh, we see here in verse 3 that they came, so some people came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. We're not entirely sure what this par paralysis was. Maybe it was from an injury. 
Maybe he was paralyzed from the neck down or from the waist down. We're not entirely sure. Probably, I would think, if he's on a mat and he needs to be carried by four men rather than you know, arms over two men, or uh, he seems completely unable to do anything himself, likely complete uh, uh, paralysis, and he's being brought to Jesus. It says here, when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. So somehow they get, maybe they set up some pulley system. Maybe they just lobbed him up onto the roof with fingers crossed. Who knows exactly what happened, but likely because of the crowd, they would have climbed onto a roof nearby and then walked across the roofs, Jason Bourne style, to then uh, know when they're above Jesus and then they start picking at the roof. So uh, likely many of us have heard this story before and, and know the details that back then they don't have those, uh, the, the, the large ceramic tiles or corrugated tin iron roofs. They had uh, sticks, they had straw, they had uh, wooden beams and mud that had sort of plastered the, the roofs. And often they would have a hatch, like a little, a little door that you could lift up and climb in and out. Uh, whether they did or did not have that hatch, it wouldn't have been big enough for a full-grown man lying horizontally. They didn't want to torpedo him straight down onto the crowd. So, you know, they, they cared about his health. So they started uh, digging, and, and they dug a hole big enough so that he was going to be able to be lowered down on a mat. So this is a, a six-foot, maybe one or two feet wide hole that they're digging. It wasn't made quickly. Uh, Jesus would have been there preaching to them the word of God and a rumble would have started above the people, which maybe made them all the more fearful of the word Jesus was preaching. But, you know, he, he's preaching and, and down come the dust and then straw and, and wooden sticks start falling through and, and they can see what's happening. There are these four men up there digging a hole in the roof uh, and, and then they, they lower this man down in front of Jesus and he doesn't yell at them. He doesn't scream at their interruption. He knows. He knows what they're there for. It says in verse 4, they lowered down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. So, so before we go to what he says, we need to realize that Jesus this moment has not responded in anger. He has not cast him out. He's not so self-important. He can't be interrupted. He's there. He, he recognizes the, the, the need, the desperation that is happening. And he says to them, he sees their faith, it says. Some people think that this is sort of a, a spiritual miracle that Jesus saw the state of their heart and could say they have saving faith or they have believing faith for this moment, whatever it was. I think rather that what's happening is that Jesus is seeing the act they're doing. He's seeing how desperate they are to come to him, that they're going to uh, uh, step over boundaries and hurdles to get to him. And so, and in doing all of this, they also had a, a trust in his person. They, they trusted not just what he could do, but how he would respond. If you're afraid of somebody, thinking they're going to yell at you, you don't start digging into their roof and interrupting their sermons. Yet they came trusting Jesus to respond in a compassionate way. Jesus saw that action, and in that sense, he saw their belief in action and said to them, and said to this man, lying on a mat at his feet, son, your sins are forgiven. I want to spend a little bit of time here. 
Jesus said to the the guy who's here, probably since birth, maybe uh, for a few years at least, this man can't move any of his muscles in his body. It's very, very obvious what this guy uh, wants greater than anything else. Or at least you and I would think that. We would see this guy, and there's no point in saying, you know, hey, Bill, do you have any prayer requests? What would you like the Lord God omnipotent to do if he could do anything? We think we know what he would ask. But Jesus speaks to here his higher priority. Jesus has a correct view of of the situation. And he looks at this man not primarily as a sick man. He sees not primarily his physical ailments. He sees primarily not his bodily problem. Jesus sees primarily, as a matter of priority, his spiritual debt. That he has a debt against the holy God. That he has sins in his account that condemn him before God's justice. He, that paralytic, is another sign of us. He's another picture of you and me outside of Jesus Christ. Unable to help himself unable to obey the law, unable to do anything to bring about his healing, but deeper, unable to do anything about his sins. Jesus saw this man and said to him, Son, because I see your faith, your coming to me, your sins are forgiven. Maybe you this morning... Maybe you would listen to this or you come to this church or you've been shared this by a friend and, and you have physical ailments. You, you have a chronic disease or you have an injury that has left you in some way paralyzed, uh, unable to walk or unable to work at least. And, and you would think that, that if you could request anything from the Lord in this moment, it would be your physical healing. Well, the reality is that, that Jesus wants us to prioritize our prayers. If you're not in Jesus Christ, if you don't know him, if you're not a Christian who who trusts Jesus' death in your place, who follows Jesus' commands in your life, who has been made born again by the Spirit of God, you may be sick. But your highest priority today and every day is your spiritual state. You're a sinner against God and he alone can forgive you. You're a a debtor to God's righteous standards, and he alone can make that up. You have offended and broken God's laws, and he alone can save you from the punishment that he otherwise holds against us. Rightly and justly, God condemns sinners. Even the sick, even the young, even the, the poor, there is really only two categories before God. Forgiven and condemned in sin. Asking you this morning, would you put your eyes to what is the, of the highest priority? Your forgiveness, peace with God. Let me, let me say this, that this, this paralyzed man, he, he came in that moment when Jesus spoke over him, son, your sins are forgiven. There was a, a relief. There was a peace that he had never known before. That, that he probably had imagined a day when he could walk and run in, in heaven, maybe. But there was never a, a real, a, 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 he'd never dared to imagine the day when he would feel free from his sins. 
And in that moment, when he was healed, uh, sorry, when he was forgiven, physically he did not change. And yet his sickness did change. And this is the good news to Christians to, who have not been healed of terrible sufferings, is that when God declares us righteous, when he forgives us, when he speaks peace and atonement of, from Jesus Christ over us, it's not as if your, your sicknesses don't change. They do. Instead of being an absolute enemy, you start thanking God for the, the things that he gives to you in your life that push you closer to him. Uh, instead of being a complete, uh, damnable suffering that is irredeemable and, and completely dark, God turns even those walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he turns even them into moments of seeing and tasting his grace. It's not true that just because you're unhealed, you're unchanged. There is a deeper healing going on. Even at this moment, when this guy hears that he's forgiven, his sickness changes. It's no longer a curse. It's an affliction from a father who loves him. So here we are. There, there he is laying, still paralyzed. Maybe the guys up on the roof had, had been amazed at this declaration, but they said, that's not really why we sweated so many kilometers to carry this guy, Jesus. There is one more thing we have to ask, but we don't hear of that. All we hear is, Jesus, son, your sins are forgiven. And then we see we see the response of the opposing scribes who were there. Uh, verse 6. There's some of the scribes were sitting there, so, so they were quite close by. They were apparently some of Jesus' closest followers so that they could criticize. So they were here, they were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're correct in this. No one is allowed to forgive sins but God alone. And here is Jesus claiming to do that. An absolute declaration. This man is forgiven by God. These religious folk, at least on the surface, seem right to question it. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit what they had thus questioned within them, he said to them, so he reads their minds, he hears the filing stench of an accusation arise in their spirits. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? I had reason to question on a human level, but the, the other reality is they had the word of God. They were watching Jesus explain the word of God. They had Isaiah 61. They had Isaiah 53. They had Daniel chapter 7 and 9, which would tell them that the, the coming Messiah would be able to do these things. And that he would be God and he would be man. But they, because they were not repentant and because they were not born again by the Spirit and not reading the Bible with believing eyes, they accused him of blasphemy. So Jesus then says in verse 9, and it's a bit of a cryptic question when you think about it. He says, so what's easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And that's, I mean, at first we go, well, like we're good theologians. We know what the answer is. Of course, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven. You know, the, the devil can, can uh, make it look like there are healings and he can give people their power to walk again, but he can't forgive sins. But Jesus is not really asking the question, which is more difficult for God to do? He's saying, 
Which one, if I was a liar, if I was blaspheming, which is easier to say in public and get away with because you can't really prove me wrong? I just point at somebody and say, your sins are forgiven. And your sins are forgiven is sort of like those fake healers on TV or, you know, uh, uh, in, even in our own town who will talk to people and say, your invisible disease of depression, it's, it's gone. And your invisible disease of, a, of a, you know, a slightly elongated intestine, it's now healed. That's easy to, to call out. There's no proof that that is actually being done. Well, Jesus is saying that. You could put me in that category. Maybe I'm just saying your sins are forgiven. That's easy to get away with. But what if in front of a crowd, too big for this house, filling the streets, I said to this man, get up, you're healed, you're not paralyzed anymore. Obviously, that one's harder to fake. He says that in an immediate sense. Get up now, you're healed now. Take your bed now, walk away now. It's very easy to certify to see whether he's being legitimate or not. So he's proving to them. He's, he knows that if you demand miracles, you're adulterous, you're idolatrous, you're condemned. We never come to God and say, prove it with a miracle, God, your word is not enough. That's never our mindset. But Jesus meets them in order to judge them. In order to oppose them, he says, uh, he says to this man, look down in verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. This man with atrophied limbs, with weakness throughout his entire body, worse than somebody coming out of a coma after a few months who has to rehabilitate their movement. He was able in a moment to spring up, pick up his mattress, carry it, through the crowd and walk. And so it says that he walked and he went out before them all and he was the aim so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying we never saw anything like this. All we see is that Jesus did this to prove something. Not because the healing was the bigger problem, the bigger solution that he wanted, but to show something very, very, very particular. Look at verse 10. This is why Jesus did that miracle. He says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, therefore I will heal this man. Why? So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the gospel. But, but what we want to see is that Jesus calls himself son of man, and, and he's not simply saying that he's incarnate. He's, he's a human. That's, that's actually not what's going on here. It's not as if, well, he's son of God and he's son of man. Rather, what we, uh, Jesus means when he calls himself son of man, in your Bible, they're going to be capitalized, capital S and capital M. And what he's doing is he's pulling from an Old Testament prophecy in order to show people what he thinks of himself. Son of Man is Jesus' most famous title to use over his life. It is the most frequent one that he calls himself in the gospel records. Son of Man is a, an enormous topic, and I, uh, I'm planning to talk to that specifically in a sermon coming up uh, at some point. But, but for now, it's going to suffice to point to Daniel chapter 7. 
in Daniel chapter 7, we see Daniel's prophecy of, of God, the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, and he's majestic, he's glorious, he has authority over all kings and all lords, and he's calling them to account. And, and it's, it's, this, uh, uh, it's this God who comes and takes his seat on the divine throne, and then Daniel says in verse 13, I saw something else, another, be- another person. He said, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So he's, he's divine. He's coming from heaven. Yet he's like a son of man in that he's a human, a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. The, the, he came to God and was presented before him. But he wasn't judged like the others are. He wasn't brought to account. Instead, to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, so he's got an eternal life, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom that Jesus brought, the kingdom that Jesus preached because he's the king from that Old Testament prophecy from Daniel, the son of man. It suffice to just wrap it all up by saying that the son of man is the Messiah. The son of man is God's representative to rule in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus uses this name for himself frequently. And the defining word there, for the Son of Man. The defining characteristic was his authority. He was given the kingdom. He was given to dominate. He was given to rule and reign. It is his kingdom. He has that authority. And so Jesus says here, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Therefore, he healed that man that day. So, so no one can be forgiven by ourselves. We hear this all the time in pop culture. You need to practice the, the act of self-forgiveness. Right? You need to declare over yourself peace and forgiveness and that you are right and that you are all you need to be. Friends, that's demonic. That's satanic. You're not all that you need to be and you don't get to declare forgiveness over yourself because it's not your standard you violated. It's not ultimately your laws you've broken. You are not the ultimate person that you have sinned against. Ultimately, every sin, it will apply to ourselves, it will affect other people. They are ultimately against God himself. So it's only him that can extend forgiveness that matters. And God has issued forgiveness. He has given forgiveness to Jesus to mediate and give and hand out and pour on the nation's through his gospel and in his kingdom. So there is forgiveness possible. The Son of Man can forgive sins, not not just in this spiritual uh, heavenly version, like in your next life you might taste forgiveness. In in the next era of God's work, of of history, there might be a, a sense of peace then. Friends, today, on 
earth. Jesus still rules in heaven. His kingdom is breaking through in this world, and you step into it by being forgiven today. God has issued Jesus for your forgiveness. Our sins were put onto his back, and he carried them to the cross. Our sins were put in his account, and he was crushed by God's wrath in our place. And because he did that, he's been given the authority on earth to forgive sins. In his name, the forgiveness of sins is declared today and every day. Repent. Turn from your life of sin. Come and serve Jesus. Believe in his death in your place. You will be saved. And then we, we see if, if maybe all of that is just way too fanciful, or of course, you know, this is just, just Christian religious language about being forgiven, and, and you sit there and you have a, a secret sin that no one else knows about, or you have a, a past that plenty of people know about, but, but, but that you don't speak proudly of. You are dark. You are, you are deep down the path of sin where no one can pull you back. You've got things that you've done that maybe you're going to try and play church, but you know you are not in right standing before God. You never can be. Well, just in case any of us think that, Mark then moves to this very brief next account to show to us the Son of Man does have authority on earth to forgive sinners, to call sinners, and then he stands at your defense. And he stands as your healer and savior. So let's read this, this short account of Levi, who becomes Matthew. But Jesus, he went out beside the sea, of course, after this crowded house. Uh, of course, now he's got some more breeze through the roof uh, from the hole. But anyway, he goes out while some renovations are done on that. He goes out by the ocean, starts walking, and the crowd continues to come to him. And of course, he was teaching them. That was his practice. And, he wrote, uh, and then he passed by the, the Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. There is just so much going on here. I want to unpack all of it. We want to close up fairly soon, which means nothing for the newcomers, but you know, I'll say that anyway. Uh, but in, in Roman time, and remember the Jews in Israel were under the authority of Rome. Rome ruled over them. And even though they sort of had this, this peace that you can practice your own religion and that they had a, an agreed-on peace so that they weren't going to be at war, there was still tyranny. There was government overreach. There was brutality from Rome. Uh, we, we remember the slaughters that happened in, uh, in Galilee. Uh, we remember the, 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 the destructive acts that Rome had done against the Jewish people and their worship. So this is not a great government system. But here they are, the Jews whose money would be taken by tax. The Romans demanded money from everybody that was underneath them. And one of the ways they did this was they would go to the locals and offer a, a really great deal. They say, you, you can make money if you, you, you work for us, the Romans, and you sit on the roadside, and everybody going along the highway with their goods and, and their services and and their, uh, their travel, everyone that comes along here on this Roman highway needs to pay us taxes. And so they get the locals, the Jews, um, who would be able to uh, come in, uh, would be able to be the locals on the street who would actually take money 
from the other Jews to send up to the, to the Romans. So that's what happens. Levi is one of these guys. He sits on the road. People walk past him with their fish. People walk past him with their loads of, of, of maybe it's clay, maybe it's woodworking, whatever it is that they're going to sell. They use this Roman road. Levi taxes them heavily, gets himself a very good profit, and gives the rest of the money as a traitor to Rome. So this, this government, which will then fund the murder, the slaughtering, the crucifixion, and the rule over Israel. Levi was seen as a traitor against his people, as a thief against his common man, and as a, a, a scandalous extortioner who cared nothing for justice. This man, everybody knew his reputation. No one would have loved him except the people getting money from above him. Nobody had good words to speak about Levi, but Jesus looks at him. The Son of Man, walking around, sees this vile sinner and says to him, follow me. I have a place for you in my kingdom and my ministry. Come follow me. Be a student, be a follower, be a believer. And what happens is that you know, Levi has a different situation than, say, Simon and Peter and Andrew. Uh, he, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, I mean, who, who were brothers. They, they, they were not able simply to uh, uh, get up and, and leave their fishing nets, but then come back to it later if this whole Jesus thing didn't work out. Levi, if he was going to leave his office, join this Jewish rabbi, he was going to lose his opportunity to come back. He, this is a career-ending move. Not only is it career-ending, it's income-ending. He's a rich man with plenty of uh, profits to be made in the future. He sacrifices it all in that moment when he hears the authoritative word of Jesus saying, Son, come and follow me. Well, the religious crew do not like that at all. Levi, having responded in obedience in this, to this authoritative call, he goes and he throws a party for Jesus, verse 15. Jesus reclined at table at Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners, which is just a catch-all word for all the dregs of society, they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples because there were many who followed him. Many tax collectors heard the word of Levi. They saw what happened with Levi, and they came and followed Jesus as well. Now here they are, they're throwing this well-funded party, probably, great food and drink, and Jesus is there with them. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And it seems they didn't have a very good answer, or they went and told Jesus, well, Jesus overheard them by his spirit and stormed out into the courtyard to confront these men. All that we know is that verse 17 says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The scribes of the Pharisees had forgotten something very, very important. When they're, when they're making this complaint against Jesus, why are you around tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response is, the physician doesn't go to the healthy, he goes to the ones who need him, the sick. What the Pharisees have forgotten is, number one, the office of Jesus Christ. 
The whole job of the Messiah is not to come down. There's no passage you can read in the Old Testament where the Messiah is going to come. He's going to pat all the righteous on the back. He's going to give them discounts in heaven. He's not coming to applaud you. He's coming to heal the sick, the spiritually sick. He's coming to bring righteousness because you have none. So, so they've forgotten that the job of the Messiah is to bring to righteousness the sinners and the tax collectors. They forget that. They, they don't think that the Messiah should look anything like a doctor going to the sick. But then the other thing that they've forgotten is that they themselves are the sick. They need this doctor, but they don't recognize it. Jesus has put them into this, into this corner. And he says, I'm the physician. Physicians come and heal the, the, the sick and not, the, the, not the, the well, not the healthy. The scribes then have this, this uh, decision to make. Are we healthy? Therefore, we should be healing people spiritually. We should be around the sick people like Jesus. Or we're unhealthy, and therefore we need to submit to his leadership and, and be saved. They, they didn't want to say either. They said, nope, third category. There's a third category of people who are physicians, but don't visit the sick, and that's us. And so thirdly, they had forgotten. Firstly, they forgot that Jesus was to be a physician, a doctor for the spiritually sick. They had secondly forgotten that they were spiritually sick. And thirdly, they had forgotten the needs, the desperate needs of those who are spiritually sick. They, like all overly religious people, wanted separation from sinful people. They thought that holiness is not engaging with and separating from sinful family members, friends, people in the workplace, neighbors, and people in the public square. That's what they thought holiness was. They defined holiness, like many do today, without Christ-likeness. And we can't do that. True holiness, true Christ-likeness today, friends, looks like us engaging our sinful friends, sitting down at tables with them, inviting them over to your house, meeting their family, you know, going out to, to dinner with them, having conversations, engaging unbelievers and sinners for the sake of the gospel. That's Christ-likeness. And so Jesus' response to them was damning to them it was also tremendously hopeful and peaceful for all who would hear this as spiritually sick people. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous sinners. Maybe today you are, you're sitting here and you are a sinner. And you say, I'm, I'm not righteous. I'm not a church person. I'm not a believer. I'm not holy. I'm not good. I'm not perfect. That's good. If you were any of those things, Jesus wouldn't want you. And friends who have believed, you were not wanted by Christ because you were good. You wanted so much despite that. Jesus comes and he does not call the righteous. He doesn't call the perfect. He doesn't call the good or those who just need a little bit of touching up. He comes for sinners, dead in sin, paralyzed and unable to heal yourself. Jesus, the Son of Man, does not just have authority to call to himself the good who will probably already listen anyway. He comes to the sinners who are living in lives of treacherous 
debauchery, of drunkenness and homosexuality and fornication and pornography and wival, uh, uh, spousal abuse and mistalk and thievery. He comes to you and demands repentance, demands in his authority that you leave that and come to him, but calls you with a promise that he has paid for your sins. This is Jesus that Mark wants us to see. Authoritative on earth to heal. Authoritative on earth to change people. Authoritative on earth to forgive sins and bring sinners into his kingdom. Friends, if we're going to be anything like Jesus, we need to do the same. Be about the the preaching of the gospel. Be about the caring for those who are in their sin. Not thinking ourselves too righteous to mingle, but like Christ, engaging them, preaching the soul-saving news of Jesus, loving them well, and seeing them in the eternal kingdom of God. Let's, Let's pray this morning. Father God, you say through Psalm 32 that blessed are those who are forgiven against those people who you do not account or impute any sin. God, it is impossible to be in that category of, of not having sin against our name unless by the power of Jesus Christ, by your grace, you bring us into his kingdom. Lord, I pray that those who would hear this morning, that they would hear the promise as being for them. That there is no one too unrighteous, no one too sinful, no one too damned, no one too spiritually paralyzed that you cannot step in and speak over them forgiveness. Pray, God, that you would bring many to faith. You'd bring people to see Jesus as their Savior, as their sacrifice, and as their Lord, and that you would bring them to submission and eternal life. Pray, God, that you would... Delight us in the mission of your son, that we would be joyful as we share the gospel. We would be committed to speaking the word to our loved ones. And as the word goes out from from this church and, and the individuals that spread across the city, that you would bless our speech with saving souls, God. I pray that you would build us up, glorify yourself, and may all those who hear this morning be blessed with forgiveness. And everybody said... Amen and amen.